We face a bit of an interpretive challenge this morning as we read about the encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes in Mark chapter 7. It's easy for us to know whose side we're supposed to be on, which leads us to assume the worst of Jesus' opponents and think of them only through that Christianized caricature that we hold in our minds. But the problem with thinking of the Pharisees like that is actually twofold. First, it leads us to fail to remember the humanity and faithfulness of that group of people. But even more close to home, it keeps us from appreciating the full power of Jesus' words because we tend to dismiss them as if they were spoken to someone else, to that group of hypocrites of biblical proportions and not actually directed at us. So today, for at least a moment, I'd like for you to forget just about everything you think you know about Pharisees. You've probably heard preachers and teachers mention that they were particularly faithful among the Jews of their day, But I wonder whether you've heard that all of that praying and fasting and tithing was done not only for themselves, but also on behalf of others, on behalf of their less fastidious counterparts. The Pharisees considered it part of their religious duty to go the extra mile and do the extra thing in order to give everyone, even the relatively unreligious in their community, a good start with God. So in a very real way, the Pharisees were not the exclusive hardliners of their day, but actually the generous progressives. The Pharisaic movement in Judaism began as a reaction against the concentration of power among the religious elites. During the Babylonian exile, after Solomon's temple had been destroyed and God's people were carted off away from their land, worship needed to take on a different shape. There was no temple in which sacrifices could be offered, so faithful Jews began gathering on the Sabbath wherever they could in order to read the Holy Scriptures, to celebrate the domestic traditions of their ancestors like circumcision and keeping kosher, and to lift up their prayers and praises and laments all on their own in order to maintain the traditions that had defined them as a people, they had to find new ways. They had to improvise in order to try to do those ancient things in a way that made sense during the exile. They had to figure out how, even without the priest's help, they could become a holy people in the sight of God. But after the exile was over and God's people returned to their land, a controversy arose. Some wanted to go back to the way things had always been, to rebuild the temple and forget everything that had happened during the exile. But others recognized that Judaism itself had changed and that what it meant to be faithful to God had changed. So when the priests became the central authority in Jerusalem and insisted that everything revert to its pre-exilic pattern, 
a group of separatists who became known as the Pharisees refused to go along with their plan. Their faith had grown during the exile. Their newfound relationship with God was real, and they believed that all people, not just the priests, were called to a peculiar life of holiness. When Jesus preached that God's salvation had come near to God's people and preached those words not only in the temple, but in the synagogues and on the hillsides and along the seashore, the Pharisees must have thought that they had found an ally. Jesus' populist approach would have reminded them of their own priorities, that a relationship with God was secured not primarily through temple worship, but through individual patterns of holiness. But when they saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners and touching unclean lepers and allowing his disciples to pluck heads of grain and even eat with unwashed hands, they knew that they had a bit of a problem on their hands. The Pharisees had spent centuries expanding their understanding of the Jewish customs in order to give everyone access to a life of holiness, but instead of furthering that work, this radical rabbi seemed to be throwing it all away. Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, they asked Jesus. When we think of the Pharisees as narrow-minded religious conservatives, we can't help but hear their question as if they looked down on people who weren't as holy as they were. But there's a deeper issue at stake, another question behind their interrogative. In the law of Moses, the only regulations about hand-washing apply to priests in the temple. There's no rule or law about ordinary people washing their hands or cups or pots or kettles. But when God's people were without a temple, they had looked for ways that they could maintain their religious identity. And ceremonial hand-washing had become a universal practice, a simple pietistic way for God's people to remember that they were called to a life of holiness and that they belonged to God. What's wrong with that? The Pharisees ask Jesus. What's wrong with the traditions that have helped us remember that we are God's people? The problem, Jesus says, isn't the hand-washing itself, but the distorted motivation behind it. You hypocrites, Jesus calls them. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as commandments. The issue isn't the Pharisees' desire to make their religion accessible to everyone. It's their tendency to confuse their methods for the thing they were designed to instill. In their attempt to democratize faithfulness by defining in their own terms what it means to belong to God and insisting that other people agree with them, the Pharisees' progressivism calcified into its own version of reactionary exclusivism. 
Instead of making holiness available to everyone, they ended up denying that holiness to those who disagreed with them. When they could no longer tell the difference between God's commandments and their own traditions, the very ones who stood for allowing everyone in ironically became the ones that pushed others out. I wonder if that sounds familiar to us. No matter how idyllic they are in the beginning, our attempts to mandate inclusion always results in the unintended consequences of judgment, condemnation, and hypocrisy. As Episcopalians, we are celebrated for our tolerance of everyone, except those we perceive as intolerant. What does that say about our faithfulness? The way of Jesus will always expose our hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of our judgments, because the way of Jesus is always more open and inclusive than we are. That way is built not on the holiness of the holiest among us, but upon God's own sacrifice and death for the sake of the world. Jesus Christ did not die for those whose lives reflect the inclusive love of God. He died for sinners like you and me, whose best attempt is always doomed to fail. Our hope, therefore, is not that we could ever create a church or a religion or a community or a government that embodies the radical love and inclusion of God, but that we would allow our vain belief that we could ever build it to die on the cross with Christ. In times like this, when church and society are being pulled apart by evil forces that deceive us, and make us assume the worst in other people and the best in ourselves, our hope is found in Jesus. He helps us see our hypocrisy for what it really is. And he helps us know that God's love for us is not a reflection of our best efforts or even our best intentions, but of God's great and abiding love for the whole world. We can build no kingdom that supplants the reign of God. But thanks be to God, we don't have to. We already belong to the one whose death and resurrection have flung open wide the gates, wide enough for everyone to walk in. Thanks be to God.